Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thank you for joining me here. Over the years, I have written and talked a lot about the critical significance of pop culture. So forgive me if you've heard this spiel from me before. I think it's taken conservatives a long time to understand the significance of pop culture because we tend to dismiss it as frivolous and unserious. Uh, We see Hollywood as a cesspool of degeneracy and hypocrisy and radical politics. We take a kind of a pride in rejecting it. Some people say, I don't give Hollywood a dime of my money. I canceled my Netflix account. I haven't been to a movie theater in years, that kind of thing. And I get that. I think that's not an unreasonable attitude these days. Uh, in a culture dominated by the left. But we can't delude ourselves into thinking that because we have turned our backs on Hollywood, that it doesn't matter. Hundreds of millions of people worldwide still sponge up Hollywood's fare and its political messaging. And because humans are storytelling creatures, Hollywood has unparalleled power to shape our shared narratives about history and politics, about religion and morality, about society and the individual, about who we are and who we have been as Americans. For decades, while we, conservatives that is, by and large ignored this crucial arena, the left seized the wheel of the culture and steered it in the direction of their radical agenda. And not just Hollywood, but all the cultural arenas, like the news media, academia, all of it. Because they understood that change began and still begins with the culture and not at the ballot box. That's why the left went from marching in the streets to the long march through the institutions to seize control of the culture. So the right actually lost the culture war a long time ago and is now in a position of just having to wage a culture insurgency. As an example of the importance of pop culture, look no further than former President Barack Obama, who is often called the first pop culture president. He understood instinctively the power of culture to captivate hearts and minds, and how to access and exploit the influence of showbiz in order to inspire a star-struck young army of social justice warriors to help him fundamentally transform the United States. Even after his presidency, Obama didn't just settle into a role as an elder statesman, but instead he went directly to Netflix and signed a multi-million dollar production agreement with them to produce progressive content. So, far from being frivolous, Pop culture is a serious issue. One more thing about the significance of pop culture. A couple of years ago, I was on a panel about culture, and I made some of these points about pop culture. And another panelist, a respected older educator and writer, a fellow conservative, challenged me rather irritably about it, saying, pop culture isn't everything there is to culture. He said conservatives mustn't lose sight of the fact that we need to preserve and pass down to younger generations an appreciation of what they used to call high culture, the classics, the great artists and writers and composers and thinkers of our civilization. Well, I couldn't agree more. I care deeply about preserving that that high culture and passing it on. I do that when I homeschool my kids and other kids in my homeschool community. But when we talk about Western culture today, we're not talking anymore about the inherited tradition of the best that has been thought and said from the ancient Greeks all the way through Shakespeare and so on. The majority of young people today are largely ignorant of that culture, or they just flat out reject it 
as a legacy of dead white males, racism, exploitation, oppression, you know the routine. The culture that they know and care about is pop culture, which is always centered on the present, this kind of eternal now. It disconnects them from the deeper cultural and historical context. It dumbs them down, and it makes them more vulnerable to indoctrination and totalitarian control. And that's why Hollywood and celebrities and pop culture are important. If we don't get in the game with pop culture and begin the long process of turning that ocean liner around, then we will lose everything. The high culture, too. The critic Irving Kristol once wrote, quote, A world power, if it is to maintain its position, needs to generate respect for its culture, unquote. Well, how many of you out there today think that Hollywood or America is generating respect for our culture? So that's another reason that conservatives need to get in the game. My guest today at The Right Take is a noted pop culture critic, so we're going to have an important chat about all this. So please stay with us here at the intersection of politics and culture. You do not want to miss this discussion. And don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so that you don't miss any of the important conversations that we are having here. Remember, if you like what you hear, please leave a review. It really helps. We'll be right back with my guest after this rockin' musical interlude. Don't touch that dial. My guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is my friend, the culture critic Christian Toto. He's an award-winning reporter, film critic, and host of the Hollywood in Toto podcast. He's also the author of the book Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. And he's the founder of HollywoodInToto.com. You can find his work there, as well as at the Daily Wire, Outkick, Newsbusters, lots of other outlets. He's all over the place. Ever since James Brown passed away, Christian Toto has been the hardest working man in showbiz. He and I go way back, and I've been very much looking forward to having him on the show Christian Toto, welcome to the Right Take Podcast. Thank you for having me. And by the way, years ago, I met James Brown. I was in his trailer. He had curlers in his hair, <laughs> and we had a wonderful conversation. And he, he was very kind to me. He, he praised my parents for, for uh, raising me right. So uh, it's one of my cherished memories. Oh, that is awesome. Uh, Christian, let's start with a big picture question. In my uh, opening remarks, I addressed the fact that many conservatives have over the years understandably turned their backs on pop culture as Hollywood and the music industry have become increasingly left-leaning and now they're just flat out far left and woke. I hear a lot of conservatives say, I am done with Hollywood. I canceled my Netflix. I canceled my cable, etc." And I totally get that attitude. But what would you say to those conservatives about why pop culture is important and why we can't afford to ignore it, and also why conservative culture makers need to get in that game. Well, you may be done with Hollywood, but Hollywood is not done with you. The messaging is coming at us fast and furiously, to quote a uh, particular franchise. And pop culture matters. I, I, mean, I think you know, we see so many examples, and I'll, I'll mention a couple. One, which is obviously innocuous, was from a few years back, the Rachel haircut was all the rage because... Jennifer Aniston was attractive. Her haircut was interesting and people saw it on a weekly basis on Friends and they wanted to look just like her. So, you know, in a very artificial, simple way, that's how, you know, the culture can shape things. But obviously, much more importantly, I'll just flash forward a few years to Modern Family. Now, I, I think the show is terrific. I think it was maybe the best sitcom in, in modern history. 
but it also showed a gay couple, a loving gay couple and their adopted daughter. And toward the end of that program, there was a, a gay marriage between the two characters in question. And I think that shows like that have had a, a powerful effect on how the culture itself looks at gay marriage. You, you know, if you're spending time with these characters, they're lovable, they're flawed. They obviously, they care about each other. They care about their young daughter. You know, why can't they get married? And I, I think those things have an impact. And even Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, in a, uh, a rare moment of lucidity a few years ago, talked about just that topic, how shows like Will and Grace and Modern Family impact what we say, what we think, what we do. I don't think he's wrong. And I think there are many, many more examples. And I think the bottom line is, if Hollywood didn't think that their content could change hearts and minds, why would they in infuse them with so much messaging so often? They, they understand it does have an impact. And I think conservatives have in recent years finally understood that and have finally gotten engaged in the culture wars. And we're seeing some positive results from that, but it's a, we have a long way to go. Yeah, I, I think all of that is very true. You're a Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewer. You belong to both the Critics' Choice Association and the Denver Film Critics Society. What is it like being one of the very few openly conservative music uh, or movie critics out there? Um, it's enjoyable. It's odd. Uh, I am a unicorn. There are very, very few people like me. I, I don't think like many of my peers think. And, you know, there are many times where my peers, you know, review films accurately or they do the best they can. It's obviously art is subjective where they don't let their politics weigh heavily into their reviews. But as is more and more often the case, that isn't happening. They are letting their politics weigh, you know, sway and weigh their reviews. And you can see it, you can hear it, and you can feel it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I like to do is just do the opposite to an extent, you know, to to point out political messaging and cultural messaging and let my right-leaning readers know what's going on in a particular film, but also not be so swayed by it that I dismiss a film that's good, but left-leaning. I don't think that serves anyone's purpose either. You know, if, if there's a movie with a strong progressive bent, but it's entertaining and smart and provocative, and I was engaged by it, I'm going to say it. And I think that that should be the prime directive of any critic, no matter where you stand politically. But yeah, it, it's been interesting. You know, um, I think I've mostly been treated well. I, I th I've had access to these institutions. I've access to screenings. Have I missed interview opportunities over the years? I'm sure I have, but it hasn't been significant. I haven't been treated to my face badly. But, uh, you know, it is weird to be in a space where almost everyone else thinks in a different fashion than you do. Well, you're very prolific, both writing and speaking. So more power to you, brother. Uh, tell us a little bit about Hollywood in Toto, which is an amazing pop culture site that I think all conservatives should check out regularly. That's been around for a while now, about 10 years now, right? Yeah, almost 10 years. Uh, 2014, I started it. And it is who I am, in a sense, boiled down into a website. It, I'm a right-leaning critic. I am freedom-friendly. I, uh, I am open to faith-based stories, and I treat them with respect. And I think that is not reflected with the majority of arts coverage. If you look at The Hollywood Reporter and Deadline, The Wrap, um, Variety, all these different platforms are very left-leaning. And so that means if there's a right-leaning uh, piece of content, a film, a movie, whatever, whatever you're talking about, it will be judged harshly. Uh, there are stories that will not be covered by those outlets. I think that's even, you know, when we talk about media bias, that's almost the most insidious version because it isn't just what they do and how they slant the news. It's the stories they leave it behind. 
And uh, so I, I take the opposite tact. I mean, if they leave it behind, I want to pick it up and run with it because often those stories are impactful. Uh, and one of the things I do with my site aggressively is cover free speech, uh, you know, uh, um, cancel culture, wokeism, you name it. Those are really important parts of our culture right now. They are stifling speech across the board. Comedians can say what they want to say. We're in this new frightening era and I am doing my best to be on the front lines there. I'm just one person, just one website, but I really do want to cover it as aggressively as possible. And so many times I cover these stories, which I think are interesting and, and really do impact the culture at large and the media ignores them because they don't fit certain narratives. So that's, that's where my side comes in. You know, I, I, I will cover the basics. I will review movies that everyone else is covering, but I also tackle topics that really do matter that are being ignored that uh, need more and more attention. Uh, let's back up for a moment and talk a little bit about you and your background and how you came to be doing what you do. Um, what what led you to do this? I, I know that you mentioned in your book something about uh, wokeness having turned you into an accidental culture warrior because it was destroying the Hollywood that you grew up loving. Tell us about your, uh, you know, your youth and your uh, the appeal of movies and pop culture and just how that influenced you and led you to to do what you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up wanting to be an artist desperately. I have three arts degrees, which I've really never used in any practical fashion. But along the way, through the years, I've always loved movies. And then as my art career was souring and I realized, gosh, I, I can't even draw hands and feet. How am I going to make a career at this? I leaned into journalism. But my real goal was to be a movie critic. And that's a horrible dream because not that the job is horrible, but it's so hard to get there. And, you know, even back in the day, it was challenging to work your way up and, and kind of elbow the existing film critics out of their desk. I mean, who wants to give up that job, right? So uh, I was fortunate enough to do just that. I worked at two different newspapers. I basically raised my hand and pleaded with them for me to do some arts coverage and, and kind of show them what I could do. And that's how I got into it. But even through those steps, I wasn't thinking of myself as a culture warrior. I didn't cover film from that perspective. I just wanted to review movies. I love movies. I want to share when they're great and, and warn people away when they're terrible. That, that was it. But then I was in D.C. Uh, around the, the attacks, the 9-11 attacks. I actually drove past the Pentagon maybe an hour before it was hit. And I started to realize that, A, the, the entertainment journalism field was very biased to the left and that my views were divergent and that people like me didn't really have a representative. There weren't other people like me to say, hey, I'm a right-leaning critic and this is what I thought of the film. So I thought, well, why don't I lean into it? It's professionally smart because there's so few people doing it. I'm scratching an itch in a sense, but also it was organic to my evolving feelings. So that's how it happened. But my gosh, in the last five to 10 years, things have just changed dramatically. I mean, between the rope revolution and the fact that Hollywood has gotten more and more aggressively partisan. Uh, they've gotten more and more vicious toward people who are conservatives and sometimes Christians in the, within their space. You know, how could I not cover that, be drawn to that, be outraged by that and not want to illuminate the problem for the readers? I want to get to that culture war uh, issue in just uh, a few moments here. But first, let's talk about a couple of specific movies that are playing right now that have kind of become flashpoints of political controversy. I know you're probably burnt out talking about the movie Sound of Freedom, which is the, the one starring Jim Caviezel as a real-life figure battling child trafficking. But I think it's probably the most talked-about story in entertainment right now. Uh, we can't really ignore it. That relatively low-budget 
indie flick has raked in well over a hundred million so far, uh, including making more at the box office in its third weekend than it did on its opening weekend, which almost never happens in Hollywood. Its success is especially impressive because the almost entirely left-leaning movie reviewers out there have launched such an all-out assault on this film. Why do you think that this movie is resonating so deeply with audiences, but simultaneously driving progressive reviewers into apoplectic fits? There's a lot to unpack here. And I think if we were focusing on the movie's unlikely success, the numbers, those are all legitimate stories. They should be covered either by the mainstream press or even just the arts press, for sure. This is an aberration. It seems like every summer there's one movie that takes everyone by surprise, and this is it for sure. But there's much more than that. Now, I think that film critics in general have been treating this with some respect. I think the Rotten Tomato score is solid. It's a solid movie for sure. You can like it or dislike it. There's you know, Art is always subjective. But I think most critics have treated it professionally. But I think what you're seeing now is that the mainstream media has been savaging the film in ways that even someone like me who studies media criticism and media bias and knows the hypocrisy in play and knows how corrupt the media has become. And that breaks my heart to say it, but there's nothing could be more, more closer to the truth. It's been shocking. I mean, you know, saying it's QAnon adjacent and, and, you know, how dare you make this movie? I, I've seen, I think Rolling Stone, the, 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 the reporter who covered the story was making fun of the audience that was seeing it because they were older and gray haired. I mean, isn't that ageism? I mean, we did it to, to President Biden. We'd be at, we'd, we'd be attacked for that. But of course, if it's a people in a theater there for a game, it's it's cartoonish. It's it's illogical. It's unprofessional. It's it's everything bad. And I and I I'm torn with the why. And I think I know partly why. I think even though the film is not faith based, even though the film is not political, it is not partisan it has drawn a right of center christian friendly crowd and i think for that reason mostly the media the media contingent which is left leaning and and hates conservatives and 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 christian leaning crowds decided they had to attack it and there's not much to attack so they come up with these crazy conspiracies this is qanon this is you know the actor has conspiracy thinking you know jim caviezel has said things and you know, often when you read these stories, you don't quite know what Jim said. You don't quite know what he espoused. It's a lot of, there's a lot of weasel words. There's often not links to the exact quotes in question. Listen, it's certainly possible that Jim Caviezel has some theories that are out of the mainstream or that are not based by fact. I, I, that's perfectly understandable. And if you want to critique it, I understand that to a certain degree. But a lot of actors have a lot of crazy thoughts and they are not used as a cudgel against their project. So why Caviezel? Why now? Why this film? So I think that explains a lot of it. Uh, the press is corrupt. It's crooked. It just is. And, and they don't, they, they have narratives. They don't have stories. They don't, they don't report the truth. They report what they want to support their narratives. And so that's what we're seeing here. And, you know, and some people have more sinister thinking on it, like, well, they must support child sex traffickers. I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think they've thought it through that much, but it is odd that a movie comes along that restores some faith in the box office system that overperforms in a dramatic way that does bring older audiences back to the theaters at a time where the pandemic had scared a lot of them away that does raise awareness legitimately of child sex trafficking which is a real and shocking crime that's going on across the globe 
And they make that the, the, the target. They make that the enemy. They make that something they need to investigate. They need to besmirch. They need to bring it to its knees. Why? And I'd love to have a long conversation. I think everyone who would, who's writing these stories wouldn't have it with me, honestly. I don't think they can defend themselves. But why? Why? That Why are they doing this? And I, I've answered part of it, but it doesn't really answer the whole question. And I think the answers may be disturbing. As you mentioned, Sound of Freedom is not a strictly conservative film, but do you think that its success bodes well for other conservative storytellers who who want to reach that underserved audience out there that is eager for entertainment that doesn't sucker punch them politically and hammer them with woke messaging, audiences who just want to enjoy meaningful, well-told stories. Do you think this film's success bodes well for those, uh, for other for other opportunities? Potentially, yes, but I'm not convinced. Uh, we've seen some good right-leaning content over the years and not all conservatives rush out to see it. I think the best example is Richard Jewell, which came out a few years ago. It was a Clint Eastwood film about the security guard who was unfairly accused of setting off those bombs at the Olympics. And that was a terrific movie. It had great performances. It had all the all the big names, including Mr. Eastwood attached, and it bombed, and no pun intended. And and I thought, oh, why? And I think that Warner Brothers, they didn't really understand that this movie could be catnip to right of center crowds. They don't, they, don't ex- they don't acknowledge we exist. They don't want to reach out to us. So that was part of the problem. But I, I think that conservatives, by and large, are still reticent to engage with the culture. They don't realize the power they have if they use it wisely, that if they had made that a hit, that you get more movies like it. So I'm still not completely sold. I, I give a lot of the credit to Angel Studios. They're the distributor of uh, Sound of Freedom, and they know what they're doing. They know their audience. They know how to reach out to them, how to converse with them. And so I give them a lot of credit. It's, listen, it's a good movie. I don't, don't get me wrong. But this is a lot of marketing involved. And I think that you know good marketing will get big results. And we're seeing that with Barbie. That movie had genius level marketing. They hid the hard left messaging of the film. So everyone thought, oh, it's just a sweet, funny, pink laden movie with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. They're good looking. I'll go see it. I love Barbie dolls. I grew up in that. Not realizing it was a man hating movie that was just full of feminist screeds. It's, you know, so marketing really matters, but it does. I think the Sound of Freedom success does show there's an appetite and an audience for stories like this, for heroes for heroic tales that aren't, that aren't hand-wringing and saying, oh, why do I do the things I do? We miss the heroes in our culture. We've got too many anti-heroes. I, I love Tony Soprano. I love Walter White, meaning their shows. But these are bad people doing bad things. And you know, while that's fine and that can create a great art as well, we are lacking in the hero department. And I think maybe this, this movie uh, connected with that hunger for stories and heroes where you can take your kids, you can share it with friends, you can say, boy... I wish I I could be as brave as that person on screen. Let's talk about Barbie for a moment. It, It had a very successful opening over the weekend. But as you mentioned, it was marketed as kind of goofy, fun summer entertainment. Uh, but by all accounts, and I say by all accounts because I haven't seen it yet, can't say I'm all that excited about checking it out now, but by all accounts, it's it's bogged down with this really heavy-handed feminist messaging. Do, what is your take on that? Do you, I mean, do you think its box office success is going to encourage more insufferably woke movies in its wake? What's your take on the impact of this Barbie movie? 
I think it will inspire more woke-infused films, and I'll tell you why. Hollywood is a very bubbled community. They hear what they want to hear. They say what they want to say. They're not listening to this podcast. They're not, they're not reading the Daily Wire. They're not getting opinions outside of their worldview. And if they were, they would be wiser. They would understand their audience better as a whole. But I think they'll see this and say, oh my gosh, we need to make more movies like this. And it's funny to me, not ha-ha funny, because we just saw Sound of Freedom. We've just recently seen Top Gun Maverick. And those are films that I don't think Hollywood is scrambling to duplicate. I don't think they're going to make movies like them in the near future, thinking we want to you know, mimic their success. So I just think the community is so uneasy with half the country, so unwilling to reach out, so unwilling to listen and learn that they just want to reinforce what they're thinking already. And they, they'll ignore all the woke bombs before then, before the film and say, oh, this is it. Not realizing that it was the marketing and the brand and the, the power of that doll and, and what it means to millions of little girls who have grown into women, that that, that was the key factor and that the, the trailers and the teasers were just brilliantly made and they were very strategic in hiding the story and hiding the messaging. It was a tease. You know, so many trailers today, they take the whole movie. You feel like you've seen it already. And the Barbie trailers didn't do that. So I, I give them all the credit in the world. I, I think it was this honest campaign, but boy, it was smart and it worked. Well, you really anticipated my next question about uh, Hollywood as a bubble. How long can Hollywood sustain itself as this kind of defiant bubble of woke elites who sometimes openly show disdain for, you know, the flyover Americans between the coasts in a country that's increasingly fed up with wokeness? I mean, Hollywood already now gets most of its revenue from overseas, especially China. So is Hollywood just going to increasingly give up on American audiences or focus narrowly on uh, the ones who agree with them politically and, and tailor its product for an international audience? Or is Hollywood ever going to find its way back to focusing on making entertainment for all Americans like it did when I was a kid? Well, we're seeing two dueling strikes, which could change a lot about how Hollywood operates. But even before the strikes, we were seeing Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery really start to aggressively dial back on the woke and focus in on things that entertain and that don't uh, alienate audiences. And I think that trend may aggressively continue if only because the industry is suffering so badly. I mean, look what happened to Disney. Disney was this beloved bulletproof brand. They made wonderful stories for all ages. They've been doing it for decades. You really don't have a more powerful institution in Hollywood than Disney. And then they have the Star Wars franchise. They have the MCU. They've got Pixar. They have the Indiana Jones films. They have so much content, so many IPs, so much at their disposal. And what do they do? They picked a fight with a, a conservative governor in Florida. They've gone uber woke. They've changed the content of their films. They've introduced sexualized themes into kiddie programming. And the, the company is suffering mightily. Uh, you know, lower ticket sales, park attendance is dropping, stock prices are dropping, uh, brands that once, you know, rallied the audience to go see them like Indiana Jones, all of a sudden we don't care anymore. They can't even make a new Star Wars movie. They keep talking about, oh, we've got this in development. We've hired this actor and this director and this screenwriter. Well, where are those movies? We haven't seen one in a while because they, they've really hurt the franchise with all their various mistakes, which is a topic and a story for another day. It's too, too lengthy. So I think all this divisiveness, I think all this woke, I don't know if the Hollywood that emerges from the dual strikes, I don't know if they can afford that anymore. They could for a while. Absolutely. 
But now we're seeing streaming platforms really struggling financially. And, you know, a, a couple of comedians had some really great cogent comments about the situation. Uh, Tim Dillon mentioned how, you know, his little podcast, his little video show is very successful, draws lots of eyeballs, and the budget is minuscule. But if you're in Hollywood, if you're going to put on a show, you need many more resources to make it happen. It just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't financially make as much sense as it once did because you can have a YouTube channel that does it all, that gets the eyeballs for far, far less. And then comedian Andrew Schultz mentioned how, you know, one of the things that the streamers are doing is they're not really giving away the numbers. How many people are watching these shows? What's the, what's the ratings, the real ratings? We don't have access to that. And he's, his, his theory is that the numbers are bad. And when they reveal the numbers, maybe the strike will, will force them to. Their stock prices could suffer. Their economic situation could suffer. Maybe they can't hire as many people for as much as they once did. And the whole, the whole house of cards comes crashing down. So all these raw economic forces may force Hollywood to go back to just put on a good show. I'd love to see it. I don't want the pain that's being you know pushed on these people. I mean, there's a lot of good people in Hollywood for all the people who you know, rub conservatives the wrong way. Uh, but this may just be what needed to happen. Um, let me circle back, if I may, as they say in the White House press room. Let me circle back um, to talking about conservative filmmakers for a moment. Uh, are conservative storytellers and filmmakers, are they ever going to be able to make inroads past the far left gatekeepers in Hollywood? Or are they better off, because I hear this, I hear conservatives talk about this all the time. Are they better off building a parallel culture? kind of with their own movie studios, their own distribution systems, and all that stuff. Uh, what do you think is um, is the best route for conservative storytellers? I hate the notion of a parallel ecosystem like you're describing, but I also think it's necessary. And I think that it has to happen. It's happening now to a certain degree. It needs to grow. And I think in my hopeful vision, that will force Hollywood to let those artists back into the fold realizing that they've got great stories to tell and that they're drawing a big crowd. But for now, yeah, I mean, listen, there are a million stories you could say that would make a great movie. That could make an incredible TV show. Why don't they put out a comic book about that? That won't be made for, for ideological reasons. So you're leaving money on the table and there are certain actors who don't work, you know, in the system anymore. And look at James Woods. He's a, He's in his 70s. He appears to be healthy. He's a great actor. He's always been a great actor. And he's basically, his career is over. He hasn't made anything of consequence in a while, in part because of his politics. Now, he's right of center. Sometimes he throws some sharp elbows. But I can show you a dozen actors who are left of center who show throw sharp, far sharper elbows, more aggressive, more mean, more conspiracy-laden, who work all the time. I just mentioned Bette Midler as one. You know, so... It's an unfair system. They are locked out to a certain degree. I mean, there are people who are grandfathered in like John Voight and Kelsey Grammer, but the, they're the exceptions that prove the rule. And Hollywood is not ready to, to, to break bread with them like they should. They're not willing to accept them. And when I talk to those actors, all they say is, I don't care if I'm working with a liberal actor. As long as he or she can do the job, I'm happy to chat with them off screen and put on a great show on screen. So the feeling is not mutual behind the scenes. But uh, that's where we are today. The blacklist exists. It's new. It's not quite like the old one, but it, it, it attacks people who are right of center. I talk to so many artists who are afraid of sharing their views, being who they are, speaking out politically, if it isn't in line with the progressive group thinking Hollywood. It's real. It's happening. And no one cares. And that's just the way Hollywood is today. And not just the stars. Um 
or, or actors, but also the below the line people too. Um, you know, conservatives among the crew, they they have to keep their heads down and their uh, political opinions to themselves too, or they find themselves frozen out of projects. Uh, and about pop culture now is more than just movies, of course. There's the music industry, for example. Another controversy I think we've both written about is uh, country music star Jason Aldean's song, Try That in a Small Town. Um, you know, the leftist media came down hard on that song, too, like it did on the Sound of Freedom movie. What does it say that despite the left's attempts to cancel it, um, Jason Aldean's song, well, he himself is not backing down, and the song and the video are, are now soaring in popularity. I think the song is number two on the charts. I mean, it proves that there's an audience out there for it. It also shows that if you try to clamp something down, hide it, cancel it, that often it has the opposite effect. Uh, I, I You know... The, the the song is rough. It it, it has some rough, uh, I guess, a conscious rough imagery. It, it does speak to something that's aggressive for sure. But I also think you know we've we've had storytellers and and songwriters for years tell stories from another person's shoes to kind of share their experience. It's not him saying I need this to happen. I want this to happen. It may overlap with his views, no doubt. But also it could be just the frustration that he has felt as an American to see his country burning, to see, you know, buildings ablaze, to see uh, you know, American dreams smashed. And the media either ignores it, encourages it, or says it's mostly peaceful. And some of the elements of the government do as well. So I, I think for all those reasons, it's struck a chord. And I think that the, the, the left and the media, which is essentially synonymous, they don't like it and they don't want it because people will resonate with it. Because on some level, they know that Aldean's right. <laughs> that he has a point, that that was a horrible time in history. If you wanted to protest injustices, that's perfectly fine. That's as American as apple pie. But when it turns to violence, aggressive violence, you know, in, in city after city, I mean, Portland, how, how long did, did Portland burn? This is not protesting. This is violence. This is, this is anarchy. And he's, and he's reminding us of that. And that's why, you know, listen, the, the left owns pop culture and the minute that they don't, the minute that conservatives gain a, a, a foothold in it, they're outraged. They want they want it shut down, and we've seen that in so many times. Uh, you know, attacks on the "What Is a Woman" documentary, uh, other documentaries come under fire. The press, you know, re reacts to every Dinesh D'Souza documentary like it's an attack uh, on on our um, democracy. You know, they don't like it. Uh, there was a there's been some uh, anti-abortion movies that have struggled mightily over the years in part because the system doesn't want that story out there. And does it matter that there are a dozen pro-abortion movies out at any given time? No, it's it, it has to be a completely unequal playing field. And they don't want those voices, those arguments out there. It's it's sad, but it's true. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And I, I say this all the time, that the left owns the culture. We're not really technically in a culture war. We're not in a position to wage one. We're only in a position to wage a culture insurgency because uh, the left really does own the culture. Uh, okay, apart from those controversies, which are pretty big in the news, is there any other particular movie or song or cultural trend that you'd like to bring to people's attention that might not be on everybody's radar? Yeah, you know, when you think about comedy these days, you think about late night TV, which has been shuttered since May because of the strike. You think about Saturday Night Live, which will probably not come back in the fall because of the strike. And you think about comedies on the big screen, which aren't very funny, aren't successful, or even things you see on Netflix, which are watered down. 
So that's frustrating. That's a, that's because of cancel culture and the woke mind virus, as Mr. Musk was off to say. But there is a solution, and it's out there right now. There are so many independent creators who, either through podcasting or Rumble or YouTube or other platforms, putting out really funny, subversive, thoughtful, engaging, uh, just outrageous art. And it's not for everyone, for sure, but there has been some very funny material out there. I'll mention Ryan Long. He's a Canadian comic who moved to America a few months ago, a few years ago, I guess now. And he has tons of videos that are compelling and crazy and funny. And uh, they they have a point. They have a point of view. And he's not political, but he definitely makes fun of the woke mind virus early and often. And uh, he's got great sketch comedy chops and he's worth watching. Uh, there's an organization called Free the People and they've been around since 2016, but they're starting to get into the comedy business. They've got multiple sketches. One was about the Patriot Front group. And you know, the, we don't know the full truth about that organization. A lot of conservatives think it's a front, it's a scam, it's a it's a it's a routine by the government. And you know, that may be conspiratorial and it may be partly true because we've seen the FBI infiltrate some groups in a way that's very aggressive, like the the Governor Whitmer kidnapping case. But when you watch the video, it's funny. It's really just handsomely produced. This isn't, it doesn't look cheap. Uh, you know, so there's Tim Dillon, there's Ryan Long, there's that organization. Uh, Dave Landau is doing some great work along with Quarter Black Garrett at um, Blaze TV. They have a show called Normal World. It's a video podcast, but they do a lot of sketch work. And, you know, and they'll make fun of the right as well. And of course, they got the Babylon Bee, which is just killing it across every platform possible. Podcasting, videos, the website, the, the fake headlines are just brilliant. And uh, and they, they're drawing a massive crowd. And just for your, you know, for if your people aren't aware of this, they've been attacked for years by both the press and social media. Facebook is basically at war with them constantly because their satire works. It's effective. It cuts to the chase. It leaves a mark. It's based on truth. And uh, there are bodies in this country that don't like that. You know, I, Snopes doesn't pick on The Onion, which is another fake news website. It's satirical, but it's from the far left. But they attack, they attack the bee early and often because they don't like that messaging out there. They, don't, they know the power of humor. It's why Saturday Night Live is aggressively left of center now, even though it was more balanced for 40 years. They know the power of comedy. They want to wield it. And they don't want anything right of center to be shared. We've watched two years of SNL with barely a glove laid on President Biden. That's outrageous. Yeah, all, that's all good to know. Uh, tell us about your podcast, Hollywood in Toto. I, I checked. I realized you have nearly 200 episodes so far. Uh, describe your podcast for us, if you would. Yeah. You know, I started the show a few years back and I stalled during the pandemic. And on a personal level, I've had two kids at home. I just couldn't. I couldn't create a podcast every week, so I had to had to take a knee. But I started again earlier this year. And what I'd like to do with the, with the sh with the show is, you know, in a way, it's a reflection of my website. It's right of center. I might have some reviews and some commentary that people I think from the heartland will appreciate. But what I'm really trying to do is two other things. One, I love to interview artists who have been canceled. I spoke to a, a former Canadian uh, candidate. Her name is Kaylin Ford, and her story is heartbreaking. But as it turns out, she was a documentary filmmaker, so she made a film about her story. Uh, it's sensational. I, I hope you can go check out that episode because her, she's so eloquent. She's so thoughtful. And, and her story should be something that everyone understands. Uh, you know, so that's important to me. 
that I get that out there. I get that, that perspective, but I'm also looking to reach across the aisle. One of my favorite recent interviews was with Jimmy Dore. He's a political comedian and he is left of center. Absolutely. But he is someone who will cross the aisle aggressively because that's where the truth often lies. And he's been against censorship and he's been, you know, shredding the Russian collusion hoax in a way that makes him sound like Sean Hannity. We had a great conversation. We don't always agree. And, you know, when I listen to his show, sometimes I win because I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't believe in that philosophy at all. But you know what? He's smart. He's thoughtful. He's engaging. He's willing to meet me halfway. And if it makes me a little smarter to hear his arguments, all the better. So I'm trying to do more is reach across those aisles, have those earnest conversations, not scream at everyone. And maybe I'd get more downloads if I did, but I'm not here for that. And uh, I'll see where that takes us. Uh, let's talk. I want to talk about your book too, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. Um, I don't want to give away any spoilers, and I know this is kind of a big question, but can you give us a, <laughs> can, can you give us a quick overview of how Hollywood did get woke and lose its soul? Well, I mean, Hollywood is beholden to the left. The left went woke, and I think that was a natural evolution. And I think that because Hollywood itself is based on fear fear of getting older, fear of losing your jobs, fear of your, your, your new TV show, you know, not getting an audience. There's so much fear involved, fear of beautiful young people behind you who are younger and more talented. I mean, I, and I have a lot of empathy for, for people in Hollywood. It's a brutal business, but all those things combine to allow woke into the fold and to have artists who should be speaking up for their craft, for free speech, for, uh, to be against censorship, to lay low because they fear that the woke mob will come for them next. And uh, they're probably right. And I, I, you know, I, for years, I've wished that the, the big guns in Hollywood, the, the Denzel Washingtons, the George Clooney's, the Meryl Streep's, the, the key players would just take a bold, aggressive stand against woke and against free speech censorship, but they won't. It's not in their interest right now, but uh, they just don't realize that someday it'll come for them. And uh, that may happen sooner than later. You end your book with a chapter called Hope in the Age of Woke. And we've already kind of touched on this a little bit, I think. But let me ask you, we're, we're currently in the middle of this raging culture war with no end in sight, apparently. Do you have hope that we can bring this conflict to an end and find our way back to a more unified culture? And, and by unified, I mean one that can accommodate multiple perspectives and viewpoints, but in which this vast division that currently exists is healed. And if so, how do we do that? What will it take, culturally speaking, to get us there? Well, I'm generally an optimistic person. I am not optimistic on this front. But to kind of skip to the end of your question, I blame so much of what's going on in our culture right now to the mainstream media, which is corrupt and which is biased and which is basically warping the minds of half the country. You know, there are people who are near and dear to me who have no idea that Dr. Anthony Fauci did some pretty horrible, terrible things along the last three years. They don't, they don't know it. They're not privy to it. They don't see those headlines. Those stories are not going to flash in across their smart screens. It's just not. And, th and that's a microscopic example of what's going on. I joked recently on social media that, uh, you know, <laughs> the Republicans could impeach Joe Biden, and I'm not sure it would make the, the New York Times front page. You know, so many stories are just not being covered today. So, you know, and, and, and when they're covered, they're so slanted, so grossly, uh, you know, changed to, to fit a certain narrative. So half the country is at war with the other half, in part because they're not getting the message. You know, as a conservative, I, I accidentally see all of it. I read the views that I agree with, 
And then I see what's happening in Facebook and all these different social media platforms. So I see what the Washington Post is up to and CNN. So at least I get the big picture and I can decide for myself. But so many good hearted people in all our lives don't get that. They see one side of a story. And so that inflames the culture wars, inflames the divide to a massive degree. And until that changes, I don't have hope for our country. And I, and I combine that with the, the young people who are against free speech in our culture, which is, by the way, enforced by the media, which doesn't like free speech either, which is, again, shocking and something I would never have said five years ago, but it, it couldn't be more obvious. So all those different factors don't give me hope. Um, I, I'd like to think it's in the DNA of America that we will bounce back, we will recover. Um, but I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, maybe maybe there needs to be a dramatic event that will shake up the system in the country. But by gosh, if we were even attacked from another country, I think we'd fight against each other harder than against the enemy. Hmm. Good point. I'm like you. I tend to be optimistic, but uh, I definitely think it's an uphill battle now for us to uh, try to to prevail in the culture war and to turn this country around. Christian, what is the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing? Is it just through your website or social media? What, where do you want to direct people? Well, my website is hollywoodintoto.com. That's my handle on Twitter, at hollywoodintoto. And I've got the Hollywood and Toto podcast, which is a weekly show, but I'm putting out a lot of bonus episodes and we'll be expanding in the near future. I'm looking to go into as make it a video platform as well and then get more episodes out there as time marches on. So uh, those are the main ways to find me. But I also pop up on Outkick and The Daily Wire. You can read my stories each Saturday on Newsbusters. So uh, I'm busy. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yes, indeed. Definitely. People, I cannot recommend enough that you check out Hollywood and Toto regularly and subscribe to his podcast. I can't think of a better source out there for conservatives to keep up with what's going on in pop culture, which, as we spoke about earlier, it's a really important arena to keep up with. Christian Toto, thanks so much for coming on today at the Right Take Podcast. Please keep up the great work. Thank you so much. And by the way, you know, the late Andrew Breitbart was a happy warrior. I think we need more happy warriors. And I know I sounded a pessimistic note at the end, but we should still be fighting for the, with a smile on our face and to and to make sure that our neighbors are part of the fight and that our differences are okay. We can, we can, we can be different and still, and still keep the country together. Exactly right. People, thanks for joining us. Just another reminder to subscribe to The Right Take so you don't miss any of the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. Thanks, and see you next time. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.